Yeah, there's this big the big scene in the middle where Kalki takes girl one uh, kind of through through the rain portal. Um, through the rain a, portal. Which is what, an awesome yeah. what an awesome scene. What an awesome scene. Everyone, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and today we are back from an adventure. Yes, it's true. We've had a whole month of adventure into our themed month. Murder Month was the theme this year. Um, if you haven't listened to uh, the 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 shows from that month yet, we had a great time talking about different plays and different themes of murder, different ways that murder can be used dramatically. Um, so it's a whole month, uh, four different weeks of talking about those those plays. You could go back and listen to those. It was a fun time. It really was a fun time, and it's sort of a weird thing to say about Murder Month, yeah. <laughs> but it, what's interesting to us as dramatists, as, as people who love theater and think about theater and read theater, is, is like Jackson said, just the plethora of ways that murder can be a tool at the hands of a playwright and a storyteller, and we really looked at four very different ways that murder is a tool of the writer. It's true. Really different themes, really different ways that, it, that yeah, ways that it can tell stories well and, and hardly. Um, hardly. <laughs> hardly. Hardly telling that story at all. <laughs> <laughs> It was a good conversation, full of full of things that that is worth your time. So check it out if you haven't already. But we are back into our regular kind of mode of programming, and we're coming around to the end of our season. Uh, coming coming just in a couple weeks here. Yeah, it's hard to believe every time, really, right. how quickly the end of the season feels like it comes around. But season seven is in the middle of wrapping up and never fear. The plan, as always, is to take ourselves a short break and enjoy this time the holiday season and then get back to season eight, which will begin sometime in the spring semester, early in the spring semester. We'll let you know as those plans get formalized. But just know that that is coming up. We've got about uh, four episodes left is kind of what we're planning on for the end of the season season and then we will head on to break but the other thing that's coming up which is a little more exciting than just the end of this season coming is what we're planning on a couple of kind of special interesting episodes in a row here is the idea things are still kind of in the wind formulaic and we're cementing them as they go but next week's episode is going to be a really cool one it's our special guest episode for the season longtime listeners of no script know that we love to at least one episode a season have a guest who's not Jackson and I join either Jackson or I in a conversation about a script to hear a different voice, a different way of thinking about stories, a different body of lived experiences. And uh, next week, Jackson will be talking with our special guest. Yes, our special guest next week is Jana Latchaw Milborn. She is a, a theater artist down in Kansas City, a director uh, and an actor down there and a friend of mine and Jacobs from college days. Um, so we're ex I'm excited to get to have a conversation with her. We'll be talking about The Dining Room by A.R. Gurney. Um, so you can look forward to that next week. It's always fun to have guests on the show, and I'm super excited to get to talk to Jana next week about that play. 
Yeah, and because I will not be there at all, I'll just put this in now for those of you who happen to be listening to this episode instead of that one. As Jackson said, Jana is a friend of ours, and during the pandemic, I cast Jana's mother-in-law in a play <laughs> that I directed, a sort of wow. Zoom video format uh, uh, production of Long Day's Journey into Night. And so I got to know her family a little bit, too, through the production and direction of that show. So I'm sure that will be a fun conversation, both Jackson and I know and love Jana, and I think uh, I think the dining room is a really, really cool play, too. So I'm a little jealous that you get to have that conversation. Have fun with that, Jackson, and to all of you listeners out there, that will happen next week. Yeah, yeah. Excited for that one. Um, but now let's jump into the script for today. We're, we're jumping back into our kind of normal programming. No theme around this one. Um, we're talking about a new playwright today, though. We're talking about The Chronicles of Kalki by Aditi Brennan Kapil. I just think it's a huge privilege to get to do this podcast, and I want to say that right here because this script is a great example of what a privilege this podcast is. The the huge diff, the huge variety of different kinds of stories, different ways that stories are told that we get to talk about on this podcast is just, it's exciting, it's enthralling, it's fun to do week to week. And The Chronicles of Kalki today is a hugely unique story told in a hugely unique way. It's going to be, I think, a really, really cool conversation. There is uh, the idea of enfleshing deity into humanity and and how that impacts two uh, high school women. It's I think it's just going to be a really cool conversation. It's just a really, really interesting play. Yeah, it's a fun, visceral, plays with time really interestingly sort of play. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited too to kind of get to jump into it, especially um, as, as a kind of deep breath into other forms of theater again without the theme. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, to there's get no to... murder in this one. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's... Yeah, no, there's no murder in this one. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I'm excited to get to talk about it. The police are involved though. So yeah, it's true. They didn't get yeah. too far away. <laughs> Well, before we uh, start that conversation, which we're so looking forward to, let me do what we do every week, which is ask you to consider supporting the podcast. Uh, Jackson and I are grateful beyond measure that the podcast is fully supported by the folks over on Patreon. That is where we get our funding to do what we do. Listeners like you decide that what they are experiencing on NoScript is worth contributing to because the running of NoScript costs money. Making a podcast, a weekly podcast at this level, getting scripts, paying hosting fees, all that kind of stuff costs money, and neither Jackson or I have the money to just fund that out of hand. And so the folks who are over on Patreon uh, choose to make sure that No Script Podcast continues to have life, and it has life because of them. I can't say that enough. So if you are somebody who listens to No Script and says, I'm, I think I'm getting at least a dollar a month worth of value from the time that I spend with NoScript. And believe me, we really hope and think that's probably you. And if that's you and you're not supporting us, please consider it. Go to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Again, the URL is the easiest way to find it. Patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, all one word. And uh, there you will find our Patreon page, which has a number of different tiers. Each tier is a different dollar amount that you can choose to contribute to the cost of running the show. The lowest tier is just that dollar 
dollar a month. That is very helpful to us. Please consider it. Folks over on Patreon get a couple of perks that you can see when you go over and join us over there. But the biggest thing is choosing to keep this podcast running by helping it make financial sense for Jackson and I to keep doing No Script the Podcast. We love to do it. It's a passion project, but we couldn't do it without the folks who support us on Patreon. So huge thank you, as always, to our supporters on Patreon. And if it's not you, please consider it. Yes, thank you to all of our patrons so much. You make what we do possible. Thank you all so much for helping out the show. We'll see you over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. And now, back to the script. Here we go. We're going to jump into some context real quick. Um, first, uh, on Aditi Brennan Kapil. Um, she is a... Uh, Let's see. She she is from she is from so many places. She has uh, she has uh, her, her mother's from Bulgaria. Her father's from India. She grew up in Sweden. She came over to study at McAllister College in Minneapolis. Has spent a good part of her uh, theater life in Minneapolis um, with the Mixed Blood Theater in Minneapolis. And I, and I just want to say that I I think Minneapolis is a really cool region of the country for theater. I mean it's it's not it's one of those cities that's not Chicago, New York, or L.A. where like we can those kind of the theater and film hubs in the country. But Minneapolis has such a huge theater life. And to be able to engage with playwrights who are not coming out of sort of the big three, but are coming out of these other places where really interesting theater is being done is a privilege. So I, I just love, I kind of raved and, and awed about this in our little introduction before the ep- before our before the Patreon plug, but I just, I feel so privileged to get to do uh, playwrights like this, stories like this, plays like this as part of our work on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And and with that kind of richness of, of Minneapolis theater scenes, that's given Kapil a lot of chances to do a different different types of theater. She's done playwriting, done directing, done acting, all within that sphere. Um, uh, some of the plays that you might also know her for, she did Love Person, Agnes Under the Big Top. Um, and then the play that we're talking about today, The Chronicles of Kalki, which is a part of the Displaced Hindu Gods trilogy. That play was commissioned in uh, 2011 by the Mixed Blood Theater, which I've already mentioned, and then was produced in 2013, though it was workshopped in New York City at the Lark. Um, the Chronicles of Kalki comes square in the middle of what is in fact three plays, uh, the Displaced Hindu Gods trilogy, um, which is uh, plays about three different Hindu gods that have been uh, kind of embodied, incarnated into modern uh, di- di- diaspora communities of Indian heritage. Um, so, so you have the first play, which is uh, Brahman Brahmani, uh, one here just stand-up comedy show. Uh, then you have Chronicles of Kalki, and then you have Shiv, which is another play about the Hindu god Shiva. So so right kind of square in the middle of that, you have the Chronicles of Kalki. These plays don't have to be done together. They don't have to be done separate. Um, The the script is pretty plain that you can do uh, whichever one you want to. Although there are many examples of this production having been done three all together, kind of running together, either, either on a night or in a season. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's the kind of bit of context on Chronicles of Kalki. Pretty recent play, 2013, as I said. So it's still kind of making the rounds, uh, in places to be produced. So, so that's, that's most of the context for it. And while neither Jackson or I clearly are, uh, in any way experts or even knowledge. We could not consider ourselves knowledgeable about the Hindu faith, really. Um, it is my understanding that this, that these three persons that are represented in the three plays of the Displaced Hindu Gods trilogy are sort of the three 
persons of the sort of godhead deity being that is at the center of the Hindu religion. And to use that as the structure for a trilogy of plays, I just marvel at how creative and interesting that is. Jackson and I are both particularly interested in plays from faith and stories and dramas from faith. And and as we will get into, as we discuss the play we're talking about today, this play's way of in, including faith, including the supernatural, and in, in playing with the sort of religious stories that make up a belief system is just so incredible. It, it just it blows my mind when I read the script how interesting that part of it is. So the Chronicles of Kalki is a it's a four character show. Um, there are is only one named character though, which is interesting for a full length script, and that character is uh, Kalki. Kalki again, we are not experts or even right. that knowledgeable on the Hindu religion, so we are speaking from a place of ignorance. But just as a way to try to set the stage for what happens in the story, my understanding is that Kalki is the tenth and final avatar of the. Hindu god Vishnu, and that uh, each of these avatars comes sort of to, uh, across history, it, it becomes embodied to deal with some sort of major crisis. Um, and Kalki, the final avatar, is sort of summoned to defeat all evil and to, to purge the globe of all pain, all suffering, all evil in that way. And that once that happens, then that's that's sort of the culmination of the Hindu faith. Again, speaking from a place of ignorance, but that's sort of the, the, the world, the character that is imagined here. So, is this Kalki the final avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu? That is a question. The character description says Kalki is about 15 South Asian female, possibly the final avatar of the god Vishnu. I think possibly is an interesting thing to put in the character description there. Again, that's the only named character. The other three characters are Girl 1, Girl 2, and The Cop. Now, that's not to say that any of those three are side characters. This uh, be, Being a four-hander show, they all have a very significant role in the plot and what happens, but just for some reason, they go unnamed. Well, we think that'll be interesting for us to talk about. Um, the, the rough overview of the plot is this. Um, the meta level of the story is that Girl 1 and Girl 2 have been brought to the police station as, I think, just witnesses. It doesn't feel like they're being interrogated as criminals. As witnesses to a strange event that has occurred within the past couple of days, and they are being interviewed by the cop, one at a time. The the play sort of structurally flips back and forth between interviews with the one girl, girl one, that's sort of, eh, and uh, the other girl, girl two. <laughs> and uh, each of the girls, you know, being a unique personality, has a unique lens on the story that they're telling. So as the interviews occur, then we sort of flash back and live live in the scenes from the story within the story that's being told. And that story is this. Girl 1, Girl 2 are friends, close friends. They are in a world religions class. Um, and one day, this what they assume is a transfer student sort of appears out of the blue. This is, of course, Kalki. Kalki immediately bonds with their friend group uh, really tightly. Um, and sort of a number of things occur because of this relationship. They end up uh, robbing a convenience store, uh, shoplifting, basically to get out of the rain. They steal some comic books. Um, Kalki takes Girl One on an adventure to a college party where she meets a boy from her high school. 
Um, that it is revealed that Kalki has some sort of strange supernatural thing going on um, that only Girl One knows about, really, because of this adventure. Um, the long story short, though, the boy that Girl One met at the college party ends up being a total jerk. And there are a number of sort of smaller events that get us to this point late in the play. But late in the play, he approaches Girl One in the sort of the outdoor cafeteria area, um, asks her to perform a sexual act on him at school in front of witnesses and instead pees all over her. I mean, really cruel and mean. And she is trapped in sort of the circle of laughing high school folks. Um, meanwhile, Kalki and Girl 2 uh, sort of watch on, and that represents this big break in their relationship that they watched rather than helping her. Um, however, Kalki rallies Girl 1 and Girl 2 to basically get their revenge. And this is the event that then, of course, in the meta level, they are being interviewed about, which is that the boy who did this was like tied to a toilet in the men's restroom his hair was shaved, he had some stuff written on him, um, and he claims this was the result of a, a six-armed person doing this to him, although the cop believes it was really three people uh, doing it to him. Uh, the end of the play is that Kalki leaves Girl 1 and Girl 2 changed um, and departs on a bus to keep sort of wandering the earth, I guess, to to combat slaying, you know, to slay demons, basically, to, to fight evil. Um, and Girl 1 and Girl 2 then, back at the middle level of the story, sort of make up their relationship at the police station. Uh, and the cop says, hey, I have the video footage from that day in the convenience store. There was nobody with you. You made up Kalki, didn't you? Nobody but you ever met her. They do admit to making her up, although I think there's a major question mark there. Um, and the cop basically ends the play by saying, well, the convenience store guy swears he saw a third person, but I just, I believe you made it up. Um, and then the, the play ends with us seeing Kalki trying to hitchhike with her sign, advertising her uh, monster slaying abilities, basically. And that is just the very broadest sweep of the Chronicles of Kalki. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, there's there's lots of little pockets to explore in it, but that's kind of the, the, the meta picture. Um, the, the, the question that I want to jump into right away is the question that you brought up towards the end there, this, like, doubt in our mind that's that's cast around not only, so there's two big doubts in this play. There's whether Kalki is, in fact, the final uh, incarnation of Vishnu or not, and then there's the, the, the doubt whether Kalki is there at all. Um, that kind of gets thrown into the last minute, though we perceive Kalki throughout the play, and certainly the characters do. Other characters seem to be affected by Kalki, the store manager, though the footage uh, shows that there's only two of them in the store. The store manager swears that there were three girls there. So so there's this interesting kind of... Uh, play on play with reality play with perception play with uh with almost uh the ability that some of these characters especially girl one to manifest kalki into the world either physically or just even as like an imaginary friend way yeah, well, and and the question, of course, of is Kalki the final avatar of Vishnu or just like a wandering vagabond girl that sort of wander <laughs> high school aged girl that wanders into their lives, right. or is she a total imagination from the very beginning? These are all interrelated questions and and have to be sort of pulled out. It it does not seem it seems like to me the wandering vagabond stranger that goes missing, which is the thing the cop is investigating, is set, that that explanation is 
is fairly confidently set aside by the end of the play, which leaves us with the explanations of this was an, an invention by girl one and girl two to deal with the bullying, the pressures, the hate, and the breaking up of their relationship that they are experiencing at the beginning of the play, or this is truly deity enfleshed, and Vishnu has come in the final avatar form as Kalki, finally. Um, and there are some explanations given to us about helping to understand some of what the cop accuses them of at the end of the play. For example, after Kalki and Girl 1 escape the college party when it's raided by cops, um, uh, Girl 1 says, wow, how did you get away? Are you okay? And Kalki says, well, I'm invisible. I'm invisible. Right. And, of course, that might explain why she doesn't appear on the cameras. The guy who they capture and take their revenge on at the end of the play, he claims, although we only hear this by hearsay, but he claims he was attacked, right, by a six-armed person, like I said. Even if you believe that was three people, who was the third person? There's only right. two other characters in the play that we know. So there's there's all of that that question around who this person is and what the significance is on sort of a, a religious supernatural level. And all of this is related to this quote that is, is given to us at the beginning of the play, which frames a lot of this discussion throughout the rest of the play. Uh, girl one, the first of the two uh, high school women to be interrogated, is um, she's telling the story of when they first met Kalki, which is in their world religions class. She has just been asked to stand up and uh, give her opinion on the Hindu faith, which they're learning about. Of course they are, given the play. And uh, she says that she's an atheist. She doesn't believe any of this. She gets sort of pushed back on by some of the other classmates. And her religious teacher sort of, uh, she, this is, I'm just going to read the quote. This is her telling of that part of the story. Then Mr. Brooks steps in like I need backup or something, and he's like he's telling everyone to pipe down, and he says something about Voltaire and how I was bringing up a good point about the Enlightenment and how Voltaire said, if God did not exist, humans would have invented him. And that quote frames so much of the rest of the play to the point where the girls finally, in the very sort of final scene with them and the cop, bring that idea right back up, right? There's not a, there may not be a distinction between Kalki being real and being made up. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, that, there's that question of can people make gods <laughs> or can people uh, will them into existence? And Kalki kind of supports that. Kalki uh, says to girl one, it was you wishing for me that brought me here. Even your need, to yeah. Yeah, yeah, your need, your, your, yeah, your, your desire for some sort of change, whether that's to slay the demons or something like that, but certainly for some sort of change brought her there, which much to Kalki's confusion, right? Like th throughout the play, there's these lines from Kalki, like, are there even any Hindus in this class? Right. Why yeah. am I here? <laughs> like, you, you know nothing about this stuff. Why did you call me of all people? And yet still, she kind of serves as this, um, help to guide these two other high school girls through the war zone that is high school. Um, uh, the, you know, this, this kind of this fight that they're in, they kind of need this avatar. They need each other too. And that's the other thing that, that Kalki gives to them is this, like, as they were kind of branching apart from each other at the start of the play, girl two is starting to be like incorporated into the cool girl cr crowd a little bit or trying to be. And so they, they kind of have this friendship that, that Kalki also forges between them once again, um, that, that, that she helps them kind of get through that war zone as well. Yeah, and I think the major question of the play is not what 
Kalki is in sort of the grand supernatural scheme of things, but what Kalki does for these two high school girls. And what I mean by that is uh, Kalki, though she's the only named character and she's a, a really magnetic character, really interesting to spend time with as a human being because of her weird perspective, her all these constant jokings around religion and stuff. Although she's a very magnetic character, she, I don't think in any sense, is the protagonist of the play or the person on a journey in this play. This is about girl one and girl two, and I would even say much more girl one than girl two, on this whatever journey it is. And Kalki plays a role in pushing this journey forward, helping that evolution to take place, regardless of whether she's a figment of their imagination or the fact of deity enfleshed. Yeah, I agree. Despite the fact that she is the named character and also names the other characters, um, she, she yeah. <laughs> by, by the end of the play, she has kind of given names to both uh, girl one and girl two. Um, and, and so so you so you have a lot of power in her character. But but I agree. She's not really on a journey, I think. And I and I further agree that girl one seems to carry just a little bit more weight in the story. We're, we're with her for a little bit more of the time. She's around, she's the one around which a lot of the kind of conflict happens. The reason for the cop being in the play is centered around girl one. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're definitely, I, I, I feel we're definitely on the journey with these two girls as they navigate, certainly high school, but also this, this, um, yeah, the, 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 the feelings of outsideness with the high school. Um, you get that kind of over and over with, with the, the girls that they're, they're the, the kind of popular girls that they're up against the whole time feeling kind of shunned by them, but then also the subsequent sh- like shaming that the rest of the class does to girl one and even her friends kind of do to her. So there's this kind of outsider feel for all of them that they're working through and we kind of watch them create their own inside. Um, and that that feels a little bit more like the journey that we're on. Yeah, and it, it becomes sort of a, a game of tracking how are these girls different at the end of the play based on their encounter than they are at the beginning of the play. And to be honest, at some points, that's a little bit unclear to me in terms of, of grasping it in a real um, uh, 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 a real tangible way. One thing that we know, which I think is interesting, is that the idea that Girl One might run away is regularly brought up from the very beginning of the play and then reminded throughout the play a couple of times. In her very first encounter with the cop, as she's telling this story about um, about getting up to speak in the world religions class, she talks about how she was feeling like she might make a break for it and run out of town, take a bus out of town. And the stage direction is, this is truth. At that moment, she thought about running away. And so I don't know if that's part of the idea. Like, um, see, see, one of the I think the 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 lesson that Kalki teaches them, or at least that Kalki tries to teach them, whether or not this is what they take away or not, I guess is interesting. But what, what she, you know, Kalki I think attempts to teach them um, not uh, some sort of like sense of combat of 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 being willing to step in and stand up for yourself. Does that sound right to you, Jackson? 
Yeah, there's this big the big scene in the middle where Kalki takes girl one uh kind of through through the rain portal. Um that, through the rain a, portal. Which is what an awesome thing. scene. Yeah. What an awesome scene. <laughs> yep. Yep. She kind of takes her out. They sneak out together to this college party, and there's and she kind of goes through this big um worldview shaping monologue where she's trying to get girl one to kind of subscribe to her mentality of this like hunter or huntress. Um, uh, there's, she kind of defines the world as two different things as beasts and meat and, uh, kind of the, the, the dichotomy between those and whether, and if you want to stay in the palace kind of guarded with all these poisoned people around you, that's fine. Um, but you could be a beast out here if you wanted to as well. Someone who's like out there trying to, uh, win rewards, take names, sorts like kind of the, uh, yeah, the sort of warrior-ish mentality of that. And so you have her trying to give that to girl one. And girl one, I don't know that she necessarily like subscribes to it fully. Um, she she like kind of self-professes that she'd rather just be the meat in that scenario. <laughs> um, and that, that kind of starts a nickname that she that she continues, Valky, or I'm sorry, Kalki continues to call her meat throughout the play. Um so yeah, there's this this kind of worldview she's trying to give to her this, you know, avatar-like um, uh, being uh, trying to defeat the world around her. Um, tries to give this to to both girl one and girl two, and I think they well well girl one maybe doesn't like sign on fully. They have a changedness as a result of being in contact with her ferocity for that amount of time. Well, yeah, I mean, they take take this guy that was right. so abusive and cruel, tie him to a toilet in the bathroom. I'd have to look up the specifics of what the assault is, but something like that, and shave his head, and right. So, I mean, they've they've definitely stepped into the the combat, the stand up for yourself, straighten your spine. Yeah, uh, this is war. I mean, I think Kalki says that to them. This is war. Pick a side, fight. Um, that that ness, and you, I think you did a great job describing the lesson that Kalki teaches girl one and I think she teaches a similar lesson or or allows girl two a similar opportunity uh, Kalki comes this is about very late in the play, Kalki comes to find Girl 2 in the library and says, look, something's going on. Girl 2 sees something's going on in the courtyard. It involves Girl 1. They're friends, so she wants to go get involved, see what's going on, you know, maybe try to help. And Kalki basically says, "Stay if you have to stay here because it's safe. If you step outside the circle, then you're in the war and I, I can't protect you anymore. And there's this lovely, magical moment of the, the library becoming sort of this circle of protection in the forest, the book become sort of leaves it's yeah. it's incredible incredibly described in the script i would i think be fascinating to try to create that in a visual uh physical way on stage but regardless right girl two steps out of the circle of safety and into the war and so there is something about Kalki bringing to these two young women a sense of combativeness i mean and i mean that in the best way right a willingness to step up and be participants in the fight rather than, uh, I mean, you know, like I just described, Girl 1 is planning to run away at the beginning of the play, quite literally. Yeah, run away or like the, the two other response, right? You know, fight, flight, uh, Girl 1 wants to run away. Um, fawn is another response to, uh, you know, uh, 
conflict, and that's kind of what Girl Two is start is doing at the at the beginning of the play. She's kind of fawning, becoming like the uh, the the kind of popular or the 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 meta mind of the school. Um, and and Kalki shows up and kind of gives them fight as what they should be doing. Like here's your response to trauma: you fight it. Um, and 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 so you have you have them kind of going on this journey, claiming that power by the end of the play with this you know attack on this other on this school dude um and uh yeah so you so you have that kind of journey for both of them kind of leaving behind both the flight and the fawning and instead switching over to this fight mentality that Kalki offers them that is kind of slowly sussed out through these like flashback scenes right that's the other kind of weird thing in this play is i mean we, we barely talked about the cop and he yet the cop is on quite frequently um but it exists in a different time than all of the Kalki scenes um, because all of those are done in this kind of flashback timey wimey business. Yeah, so th- there's this 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 present moment that is their interviews in the police station. I'm not exactly sure what the role of it is, other than just sort of a structural um, webbing in which to tell the rest of the story. Uh, to me, the only real there are, I guess, let me say it this way. I do think there are payoffs to the cop interviews, but I just don't know that they really involve the cop, which is interesting. Right. Um, you could almost ask to write him out, but then I, I'm not really sure how you would drive the storytelling without that sort of interviewer character. But the payoffs really seem to be about the girls, right? They they have that moment of reconciliation where girl two come, basically comes in and says, I can give you a ride home in this terrible rain. You can drive home with me and my family. Girl one's mother it's a little bit of an absentee parent has been throughout the course of the play isn't going to be there to pick her up so they, they reconcile through that moment which is a big question in the play is their relationship sort of going to be over because of girl two not helping her in this terrible bullying uh really assault moment um and, and so you have that moment and then you have their sort of conclusions about what their experience with Kalki was which again is prompted by the cop when he says i think you made her up but i don't i mean he's never i don't think he's ever like moved to be convinced in any one way or the other direction right certainly not of kalki's like existence maybe of the effect that that, you know perhaps he exists in a world where he says i believe these girls invented something that affected them deeply and thus you know they experience this being in some real way but there isn't like a moment where kalki shows up and you know becomes visible to him for a second and he's let in on the secret or something like that instead he's just kind of he's a little bit um he's a little bit us as the audience yeah yeah um Mm -hmm. this this kind of like walking in, interrogating a situation. He's not really there to like, uh, to pin any of this on the girls. He feels like he just wants to understand, which is the role that we are in as the audience. We're, we're like, we're, we just want to understand what's happening for for much of this play. And especially the kind of little, little hints that we get along the way, uh, with, with Kalki, especially even right, right away in the first scene, she has these lines that are like, I emerged out of the football field <laughs> and <laughs> it's raining, which is great. Perfect conditions for me to emerge out of football fields. Um, and so, so you have all this curiosity and the cop kind of asks some of the questions that we would ask if we were in that scenario too. Yeah, well, and and so let's keep pushing on those sort of what are the roles of the different things that uh, Aditi Brennan-Kapil has included. And let's talk about why Girl 1 and 
girl to go unnamed. I mean, that's another major feature of the script is that these are unnamed characters. Kalki gives them nicknames that we sort of get to know them by through the course of the play. She calls girl one meat because of their sort of shared encounter at the uh, at the college party. And she just she calls girl two Betty, which is just a, a translated just means girl. So she's really just calling her girl right. again. <laughs> but meat yep. and Betty are what we sort of come to know these two by yeah yeah and yet yeah it is a fascinating element that they continue un unnamed throughout there's there's some interesting you know drama dramatist and dramatist dramaturg um is what i'm trying to say sort of like wonderings around what what uh why exactly like is it that you know through the course of the play they define themselves more and kind of through that self-actualization that uh kalki gives them kind of arrive closer to being fully uh fully definable people um that's that's interesting and, and a bit of a long shot um but but perhaps something in in those categories i wonder too about um just the way that their perception of themselves changes through the play and uh you, we, we have that with the naming of each other because they they do say each other's Kalki given names to each other, at least uh, even to the cops, right? Yeah, yeah. She, she says, like, yeah. "How's meat doing?" or whatever, and the cops like, "What? Who's meat?" <laughs> 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 yeah. So, so I think that that might be a little bit of the journey that we're on, seeing um, them beginning to refer to each other with these names that Kalki has given them. Um, kind of has that similar symbolism of Kalki has given them something that is going to last them out of this time through this war time for them. Yeah. I, I wonder around whether Kapil isn't trying to, um, give us a sense, sort of a, a, a subtle secret sense of the social status that these girls have by not naming them. There's a, the other note in the, uh, the character description portion at the beginning of the script. And again, what's fun about being able to analyze this stuff is that you don't necessarily get this stuff in a live production. It's part of the, the reading experience and the producing experience. Anyway, the note says the girls are not pretty not overly clever, not cool. They live outside the accepted social spheres of high school society, and casting should support that. And so that makes me wonder around the the feeling of being an, an sort of an anonymous victim of high school hate, right? Nobody even knows your name. They just know they can mistreat you with impunity, basically. And that's what Girl 1 says, right? She's talking to uh, Kalki and to Girl 2, I believe, although I could have that. Maybe she, maybe she has this conversation with a cop. I forget. But at one point, she basically says, well, this is why this terrible assault happened to me. It's because I'm the kind of person that you you can get away with treating like that. And that makes me feel, well, maybe the naming or intentionally not naming of the girls is a way to give us as the audience a sense of not only how they feel about themselves, they're, they feel less than human in high school society, right? Not respected, not even known. But then the high school society around them sees them that way too. I don't even know their names. I just know that I can mistreat them with impunity. Right, right. And that's a fascinating aspect of of kind of analyzing this play as a as a literary piece, right? Because we're reading we're, we're reading it, and we know that Girl One and Girl Two kind of have that 
both both what you just said, that kind of background to them, um, and the fact that they're unnamed in the in the script. I don't know that we necessarily know that just from watching the play. Um, like, there's no well, there's it's no interesting. chance. Like you would, I, I would assume you would have. Maybe some theaters don't do this, but I think the vast majority do. Like a, a playbill, right? Sure, a dramatist or, persona or something. Right. Yeah. So you would, yeah, I yeah, guess, yeah. see that they were just called Girl One, Girl Two in that. But let's set that aside and return to your point right. about just the experience of the story live. Right. If you were just experiencing the story live, it's just sort of the you know, it's a it's a flow of conversation. You don't necessarily say everyone's name every time you're hanging out with them. Um, it's kind of assumed. Uh, you, they have, you have these pet names that Kalki is is throwing around. So so you have this kind of interesting meta for the the characters to be playing with, the actors to be playing with um, that that influences subtly the experience of the audience, um, though they might not necessarily, um, uh, just given the the action of the play and the wording of the play, know that they are nameless in the script. And we, as the audience, cannot come to know them by anything other than the names Kalki gives them, right? I mean, that's the other trick of not naming the characters. We don't get to know them as whatever their names might be and then have to learn their nicknames. The only names we ever know them by are the names Kalki assigns to them through the course of the script. Right. Right, which is fascinating too to like have just their their uh, perception of the world. Like we know there are other people around these girls, right? We know that there's this popular group of girls. We know that there's this bully assaulting character. We know that there's these partiers. We know that there's parents. Um, we know that there's parents. Uh, certainly, girl. So there's girl one's parents who you know is kind of absentee. Girl two's parents are fairly close to her. She tells her parents about Kalki. She says she was the most amazing person that ever happened to me. I guess I wanted to share her so she's told her parents about him we have this professor at the beginning that kind of makes girl one stand up and say something in class but all of these characters are viewed through the lens of the two girls in fact possibly even Kalki is viewed through the lens of the two girls though she is personified for us to kind of see their perception of her so there's there's a fascinating lens i do think that's really interesting the 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 deliberately not including any other characters besides those four listed. And it's, it is sort of, it's almost the same technique as deliberately not naming the characters, right? Uh, some yeah. of this play, some of what happens in the playwriting lens here is deliberately not including more than it is deliberately including, right? Just like we only know the characters' names insofar as we experience the story and we experience the names assigned to them, we only get a sense of the world around these two characters characters through their descriptions of the world around them. We don't meet this jerk guy who assaults girl one late in the play. We just get her stories and the other girl's stories about him. We don't meet their parents. We just get their sense of them through the stories that they tell, which is an interesting, if you're the playwright, it's, it's sort of interesting then to say, well, I also include this cop and I also include Kalki. I mean, you could see a version of this story that's a two-hander. Right. Sure. We just yeah. get the girl one and girl two's descriptions of the story and of Kalki, and we never meet her. So it is interesting that that there are two those two additional characters, the cop and Kalki, appear in a play which so deliberately does not include anyone else. And interestingly, those two characters appear at like really. Uh pivotal moments for the two girls' relationships. So Kalki appears 
um, right, right when they're starting to separate, when they've been kind of fr- like they they've been friends, but they're separating and they need to be kind of reforged together. Um, Kalki shows up and they go on these misadventures. The misadventures lead to another division between them because uh, girl two shows up and doesn't help out girl one out of this event. And so division has occurred again. And the cop is the go between. He goes room to room. In fact, um, I think it's girl one. It might, I'm pretty sure it's girl one who makes fun of him as this like goldfish who's going from plant to desk yeah. or lamp to desk <laughs> or something back and forth. But he's going between the two different rooms and connecting the stories, telling each other that the other one's being cooperative. Um, so, so you have both of these extra characters, they're not really extra characters, but the non, the non two girl characters showing up at really pivotal moments for the girls and kind of being a part of the knitting of their relationship back together. Yeah. And it, it, it makes you feel that perhaps the lens of the story is that Kalki was some sort of real being rather than just a totally imagined um, thing from, from the, you know, like an imaginary friend kind of character because she is a, a, you know, a fully realized person in a play, which has very few fully realized people. But I love that at the end of the play, that Voltaire quote comes back up and asks us to consider that it doesn't really matter whether the girls just imagined this thing into existence or whether there is some sort of deity out there that enfleshes and joins these girls' lives, right? She says, uh, girl one, this is her last line, the last line of the show. I said, just because we made her up, doesn't mean she's not real, right? Deliberately referencing that Voltaire quote. Yeah. Yeah, and there's plenty of other things that at least they land me in the zone where I leave the play saying, yeah, yeah, Kalki was real. Um, <laughs> whether whether or not Real she, to them, right? Real I mean, to them. And then also like the last scene in the play, she's on the side of the road with without anyone around her, none of the girls around her advertising her like ability to go out and slay demons for food. And 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 the the stage directions are actually even more explicit about her like kind of connection to the audience. It's kind of the only time that she's connected directly or we see her connected directly to someone other than the two girls. The final um, the final stage directions are she's, so she's got her thumb out. She's hitchhiking. She has this sign that says we'll slay demons for food. Um, the final stage directions are cars drive by this way and that after a while, she catches the eye of someone or something in the audience recognition connection and a large grin. I edited it a little bit because of the podcast, a large grin spreads across her face, a big, a big hungry smile. And it just, as it peaks, we hit the blackout. Yeah, it's, it's sort of that um, that hint that another story might come of Kalki coming into someone's life and helping them slay the demons. You know, sort of to return to where we started and wondering how Kalki influences and changes these two girls. Perhaps that is the way to crystallize, you know, we, we sort of stumbled around this idea of fight or flight or combat or being willing to stand up for yourself. Maybe one of the things that Kalki offers to these two girls is the chance to slay their own demons rather than stepping in to do it for them, which she could have done. She involves them in the revenge that they take on this terrible assaulter. And, and maybe that's one way in which these girls have changed. They're moving forward with the sense that they can slay their own demons. 
Yeah, and and maybe in that, I mean, it's interesting to think about that as like, and you know, the, again, we're not we're not experts on the Hindu religion, so this is just me extrapolating from the play itself. But it's interesting to think about that as as the kind of final, uh, you know, we we think of you know the final avatar of Vishnu coming back to slay all the demons on a white horse, as is mentioned in the play, um, uh, as 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 the avatar of Vishnu actually doing that slang but it's interesting to think of Kalki showing up and instead actualizing humanity to slay their own demons um it's a, it's a great kind of twist on on the perception of of what we what we expect you know the the final avatars of whatever god to do when they when they return well on on that note as we think about that sort of deity and and the realization of that on stage maybe that's a a great way to spend our last few minutes here this play is so full and in, in a way that really impresses me and and I think impressed you Jackson that we were both so interested in plays in which faith matters of the supernatural matters of religion how those get actualized how those stories get told on stage brought to physical existence and this play, partly because it is allowed to be a little bit irreverent in a way that a lot of religious plays are not, but but also just in part because of the sheer creativity of the playwright's mind, there are so many awesome moments of of supernatural things that that are told as part of the story. I mean, well, I think that an image that, though I've never seen the play, is so brilliantly transcribed in my mind that I don't know, I mean, I, it would be, it would take me a long time to forget this because I think it's so cool, is this moment where um, the three girls, finally, they've been a little bit reconciled after the fight. They've decided that they're going to go hunting, right? They're going to go take their revenge. And so they kind of gather together in this hug because uh, Kalki has the power to so basically soak them through the floorboards on some sort of rain teleportation. I think we talked yep. about that earlier. And so the, these three girls gather together in a hug and the stage directions say there might be a brief moment image of a six armed like Vishnu uh, you know, uh, religious you know, these three women together create this sort of supernatural picture of a six armed creature. I mean that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's a really visceral image. The 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 rain teleportation happens twice. Rain in general is yeah, a big so old image in rain this play. In this yeah. Play. <laughs> You Sound designer to, has got some work. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. And you kind of have to ask the question how many times the characters are soaked because on two different occasions, two different characters enter the scene completely soaked and thus lead to the rain portal. Um, so so you have that big scene. There's a big scene where uh, just a really, it's, it's like the second scene, I think, or so that we get with Kalki where she is just like out in the rain, loving the rain while the other two are huddled under this like faux shelter. Um, so, so that's, that's a really interesting scene to think about, you know, what level of drenched, if at all, are the characters getting, um, and how it ties to, you know, Vishnu and sustaining through water, um, th those kind of big, bigger religious themes around it as well. And, and just how much water as, as a source of life plays into the, 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 the characters and what they're learning in the play. And I, I already mentioned a great moment in the library where it sort of transforms into this forest safe place. I, I mean, the willingness of the playwright, maybe this is the way for me to say what impressed me the most, the willingness of the playwright to include these moments where the supernatural, the heavenly, the the godlike touches the real world and being willing to say, here you, here you go, design team. Somehow you've got to physicalize actual 
spiritualized stage, these moments of divinity and humanity coming together and that story being told. In the middle of what is like a pretty abrasive high school drama, right? Yeah. Like these yes. characters, like that that's part of the the really like the glory of, of these scenes is that they come so unexpectedly into breaking into the mundane, um, breaking into the, the ordinary, these scenes just like pop in and you're like, Oh, Oh, maybe we are dealing with something, you know, more than just imagination or more than, more than, more than earthly in this character of Kalki. So, so yeah, that kind of surprisingness is another of my favorite parts of these kind of these moments of spiritualness in the play. And there's so much in the play that is so well crafted. Like there, you know, we've we've talked about some of the setups and payoffs. One setup and payoff that I think goes a little bit undernoticed that I think is so smart is what Kalki teaches uh, Girl One at the college party about the hunting lesson is the skinning and taking the fur and wearing it with pride. And then of course when they shave the guy's head that assaulted her um, in their sort of revenge hunting moment, they all take a piece of his hair. Hair, right, they shave his pelt. Well, what what pelt yeah. do humans have? The hair on their head. So they shave it and take it as their prize. I mean, that's a that's a really lovely setup. That then you're not really. I don't think there's a way to foreknow how that's going to be paid off until it is so finally well paid off at the end. Yeah, you also have the play starting off with this fascinating dream that girl one has about the zipper on the back of her neck that she can like unzip and step out of. Um, and that, that, that image like doesn't ever happen on stage, but is talked about frequently throughout. And, and that's kind of similar. These, these evocative images of, of, of something more, something more than, than just the mundane. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably the time that we have for this play. Man, there's so much in this play that impressed me. I, I was really, it's fun to discover scripts like this that I've never heard of in my life, but were offered up to us as something that might be good for our programming, and we were excited to talk about it, and it really paid off then. It's an exciting, yeah. really cool script. Yeah, absolutely. We could keep talking about it for more time. Alas, we are out of that time, but the conversation does not have to stop here. We would love to keep talking about this play with all of you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of, this, of those sites. You can find the NoScript community on any of those sites. We'd love to keep getting to talk about the Chronicles of Kalki with all of you out there. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, any of the other episodes for the season, or you've just been enjoying in general being a listener of No Script, please go ahead and pass on No Script the podcast to your family and friends. Tell others about it. Help them discover us. If you like scripts, theater, stories, you probably know people that do too. So send them our way. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You could also like us on Facebook, and a link to the new episode will appear for you every Monday when our episode episodes are released. So we are heading into next week with the special guest episode. So you will sadly not have Jacob next week. Bye, Jacob. Ah, uh, you'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be back next week and we'll be coming at you with another script. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.